Very good. Well, we're going to dive into the material. We covered uh, chapter one last week. And uh, just a comment on that. Um, you can access the recording of that through our podcast if you'd like to uh, follow up if you missed last week. It's also available on our website too. So. What platforms is that podcast? It's only on Apple Podcasts. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, we need to diversify our our uh, our podcasting. But at any rate, that's where it's at. You can also get it on our website too. So. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, uh, tonight we're working into chapter two. Before we do that, let me just review briefly uh, some of the things that we talked about last week. Uh, we covered the gospel because. A lot of what this class is trying to do is to keep applying gospel truth to our marriages to understand how it shapes the way we view life and the way we view marriage. And so, very simple gospel layout here. Um, good news, or have that backwards. Bad news, good news, response, right? Um, bad news reminds us that we're sinners and our penalty for our sin is death, eternal separation from God and torment in hell. The good news is that God loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, rise from the grave, and all who trust in him as Savior have forgiveness of sins and peace with God forevermore. Uh, and so the response then is a person needs to believe, uh, to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we're going to be seeing how that begins to shape the way we view things. Last week, we talked about how that has to help us have what we called gospel-shaped expectations or realistic expectations. Uh, and so here's just an example of how um, we go from having unrealistic expectations where maybe I just think marriage is, is just for my happiness, right? It's just going to make me happy. Uh, but as we understand gospel-shaped expectations, we realize, we work down through that and realize that, well, no, it's, there are going to be some struggles because I'm a sinner and she's a sinner or he's a sinner, right? So we're going to have some problems. That's, that's a realistic, a gospel-shaped expectation. At the same time, it's realistic to believe that Jesus will be there to help me because though I'm a sinner, he moved towards me and died for my sins. And so when we go through that time of struggle, God is my rescuer. He's my help. He will be there for me to help me grow, to help me learn from it. And so what's the response? To believe, to trust him as we go through those challenges in marriage. And so it begins to shape the way we view marriage. Yes, there are going to be struggles, but God's using it to grow me into the image of Christ, to use it for his glory. And he's there with me as I go through those things. So that's a little bit of a summary from last week. The last thing I'll mention as review from last week is that the temptation when we go through a study like this is uh, to think about other people, and usually the first person that comes to mind is your spouse, right? And so we'll think about some aspect of the gospel, some aspect of practical living in marriage, and uh, the easy thing to do is to think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know someone who needs to learn this lesson, you know, and kind of nudge the person next to you or shoot them a text or whatever. Um, but as much as possible, yield to the work of God's Spirit in your heart, right? That's where God wants to work, and that's the one you're responsible for, is you. And so uh, listen for yourself, and the Lord may give you the opportunity to help your spouse at some point, tonight, tomorrow, whenever. Uh, but as you go through this material, really try to seek the Lord's help for your own heart and life. There's an interesting principle in life that um, when, when we are 
ready to point the finger at somebody else, it often reveals that the same kind of thing is in my own heart. Think back to Adam in the garden, right? Uh, how did he respond when God came to Adam and asked him a question about what had happened? Adam was quick to not only blame Eve, he actually kind of blames God in his response. He said, oh, it was the woman you gave me, right? So he's kind of pointing the fingers two directions. When do we do that? We do that when we're actually guilty and we try to shift the blame onto somebody else. So there's a little red flag for you in your own mind. If you're ever really tempted to just keep pointing the finger at your spouse, it's probably because you're guilty and you want to shift the blame to somebody else. And so it's a good time to pause and think, ah, where is this in my heart and life? What's my part? What am I responsible before God to do and to take care of? Um, and how can I take the next steps to make this right in my life? So keep that in mind as we work through this. And uh, um, yeah, enough said there. All right, so chapter two is called A Reason to Continue. Reason to Continue. And it's about hope. It's about the idea that um, we all have goals and aspirations, and we really can't help it. It's part of being human. We, uh, we have a reason that we do things, right? So there's a reason you get up at a certain time. There's a reason you eat a certain way. You're either seeking to be fit or seeking pleasure or somewhere in between, right? Or we have, we have reasons for everything we do. It's just part of what it is to be human. And so that, that motivation or that end goal is kind of what he focuses on in this chapter. Now, sometimes in marriage, as we face struggles, we lose sight of the goal. And, and frankly, sometimes the thing that we first set as our goal, like just have this great honeymoon feeling for the rest of our lives, well, suddenly that disappears. And you're like, I don't know how to get this feeling back. I don't know how to go back to the honeymoon stage. So what's the point of going on in this? Like, I don't, I, I don't know how to fix it. I, I can't get back to that. So when we lose what it was we first wanted, it can get really confusing in marriage. Um, if our goal was just happiness, if our goal was, you know, etc. You, you can fill in the blank there. And so he begins to ask questions about hope. He says this on page 32. I thought this was a helpful quote. Everyone searches for hope. Everyone looks for a reason to continue. Everyone hooks their daily functioning on some kind of dream, something we're after. Everyone wants to know that what they give themselves to will prove to be worth it. And that's a question that often lingers in our mind in marriage. This is really hard. Is it actually worth it to keep working at this? Is it actually worth it to dig in to the sin in my heart, to have those hard conversations to confess my sin. Is it worth it? Does it actually lead to something good? And that's an important question to ask. And that's sort of the question he tries to answer in this chapter. So what we're going to do next is have a little time of discussion. In the first two pages, three pages of the chapter, pages 32 through 34, he gives some really helpful examples. Okay, there are actually, I think, seven of them right in a row. And uh, you can kind of recognize them because there's a new name right towards the beginning of the paragraph. Uh, so the first one is there on page uh, 31. Tom was struggling to pack it in, etc. You, you get the idea. I think each paragraph starts a new character. 
So I think you've got the instructions there in your notes. Gather with just a few other people. Select one of those seven examples. Doesn't matter which one. Read it aloud and then work through those discussion questions. Now you can move quickly. They're not super difficult. Uh, so discuss a little bit back and forth and we'll probably gather back together here in five minutes and hear from you, hear some answers uh, of what you think. Okay, so go ahead, find some people nearby that you can discuss this with and uh, I'll gather you back together in just a little bit. All right, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you. You may not have gotten through all the questions yet. I hope I'm not rushing you too much, but we'll keep moving with our study tonight. I just want to hear from a few of the groups around the room, so feel free to share your answers. Um, in your own words, what happened that left one spouse feeling no reason to continue? So just around the room, what was your, maybe the name of the story you had and then what you saw as the reason they felt no reason to continue? We had uh, Brandon, we said that he was uh, hopeless in his situation, so hopeless was a good key word. Uh-huh, yeah, hopeless, good. Okay, what else? I'll start calling on people. I, I will. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we had Tom. Okay. Yeah, tired, lacking fulfillment, good. Okay, well, not good, but yeah. Other answers? On the case of Tyrone and Bill, I think he was uh, feeling outsider. Okay, feeling like an outsider, good. All right, let's try number two. Okay, we gotta get a, some better interaction here. This, uh, what does this reveal about what the spouse was hoping in? Or asked another way, what was it that had formerly given them a reason to continue? So what were they hoping in? What other answers did you have? I think in Tom's case we had that he was kind of the lifestyle, the job, the family, the whole thing. There was that expectation that that would be fulfilling, that that would bring fulfillment. So he was asking a thing to be a giver. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't, things got more complicated. He was getting tired. There were all these other complications that that fulfillment just wasn't coming. So right. he was feeling discouraged. And so he put his, he put his hope in that, in the fulfillment that that lifestyle would bring. In this yep. Good. Great answer. Andrew. Uh, we have Brandon also, and we thought that one of the things that they were looking for was the spontaneity and the freedom of the yeah. Yeah, that freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. It was gone, and so he'd lost hope. Yeah. Okay, what did you guys have for that? Uh, response number three was the thing they were hoping in a bad thing. Okay, so a good, a good thing for her to want in that case. Good, good. Other answers? We had no, I mean, 
wanting the lifestyle or the family and, and to have a good a good marriage and children and, and, a, and a good job that he could work hard at. It wasn't wrong for Tom to want those things. Yeah. It was wrong for him to put his expectation that those things were the root of his fulfillment. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, would the question have sounded any different in your group if it was, was the thing they were hoping in or was it wrong for them to hope in that thing? And that begins to shift the meaning a little bit, doesn't it? So often what happens is it's good things that we want. And not all of them wanted good things. Some of them wanted neutral things that, you know, whatever, if you want to be spontaneous, that's, that's fine. Um, but the key is that a lot of times it's not like this horrible thing that we want, but it's that we begin hoping in that thing itself uh, rather than looking to God and His provision. Our expectations then get way out of whack. And then when we don't get that thing that we began worshiping, then we really struggle. And we, lo we lose our reason to keep going. Uh, so, good. Great answers. All right, well, let's continue on. We'll have another section of discussion here in a little bit. Uh, so, as you continue on in the chapter, he points out how Marriage is sort of just built to draw to the surface um, our misplaced hopes. So think about the way that it's built. It's, it's going to be a struggle. You have two sinners living in close proximity uh, under the same roof uh, with different desires and hopes, right? Different things that they like and dislike, different cultures, different backgrounds. So, you know... We believe in a sovereign God, but there's a slice of us that's like, okay, Lord, I mean, how, what were you thinking here? Like, is this really going to work out? Well, what the Lord was thinking was sanctification. Like, he wanted us to grow. And so, oh, this stuff is designed to actually bring to the surface my misplaced hopes when I'm not trusting in God, when I'm not worshiping God the way I should. So this leads us to the key question, what do we do when those things come to the surface and we just feel like, I can't continue this way. I'm not getting what I hoped for. I'm not getting what I wanted. I, I haven't found a good reason to keep trying, to keep working at this. What do we do? Where do we turn? And that's the question that sort of uh, provides the foundation for this chapter. So number one, the first thing we do is to recognize that uh, the issue is rooted in worship. And this heading is there on page 35 where he begins to talk about this. And as we remember that it's rooted in worship, um, he, he makes a couple quotes here that are helpful. A marriage of love, unity, and understanding is not rooted in romance, it's rooted in worship. Worship is your identity, not just an activity. Everything you think, desire, choose, do, or say is shaped by worship. Now, you hear a statement like that at first, and it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, this song, the worship song I sing in the shower, that's supposed to shape the rest of my day? Is that what you mean by that? No. He's talking about how our hearts actually function. And whatever is on the throne of my life is what rules me. It shapes the decisions I make, the, the choices, the direction I go, the things I hope for. And that's really an issue of worship. I think you'll understand as we go on in the chapter, but this is an important thing to be able to recognize in marriage. So letter A, we are all worshipers. Here's just an example. There's plenty of places we could go in Scripture to show that. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You can open there. 
Romans chapter 1. I will say before we read this, this is one of the more discouraging sections of Scripture, but it's a reminder to us that we are all worshipers. We really just have two choices in our worship. All right, so I'll begin in chapter 1, verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore... God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so this is basically the story of sin, that creation around us and our hearts within us prove to us that there is a God and we're accountable to him. And yet mankind has made the choice to rebel against him. And the key is there in verse 25, uh, that we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So let's go through these, uh, these sub-points here. Every human being lives for something. All of us are digging for treasure. Behind everything we do is some kind of hope, some kind of goal. We're, there's something at the end in sight, something we want, something we're after. Okay, we're, we live for something. In this passage, we, we stopped living for God. We became unthankful. We, we no longer worshipped Him. We denied His truth. And so we began living for ourselves. That's the shift that takes place there in Romans 1. That hope or goal or treasure reveals what we are worshipping. Now, sometimes we attach our worship to things outside of ourselves... Um, we might form a, a metal idol, right? There's some religions in the world that do that. Uh, we might actually just worship our schedule. We might worship our sense of accomplishment. But the bottom line is, whatever we've made an idol out of, usually the idol behind the idol is me. I just want to please myself. I just want to get what I want. Right? And so I think that this metal image will do it for me, or I think that accomplishing a lot in my day will do it for me, or that, you know, fill in the blank. So often I'm the idol behind the idol. I'm the one I'm worshiping. And, uh, and so when we look at what, is, what are we hoping in, what's our treasure, we, real, we realize what we're worshiping. And it's key to understand that there are really only two options in our worship. Either we are worshiping the Creator, or we worship creation. It's an incredible way to divide everything that exists. There's a creator, it's only one, in three persons, he alone is the creator. Everything else is created. And so we're worshiping one of the two things, right? 
It's a really actually simple way to look at life. <laughs> and worship should be only for our Creator. And so a lot of growth in marriage and even just in the Christian life in general is digging in and understanding what am I worshiping apart from my Creator and how do I get rid of that idol and worship God alone. A couple quotes on page 36 that are helpful. Being a worshiper means that you attach your identity, your meaning and purpose, your inner sense of well-being to something. You either get these things vertically from the Creator or horizontally from the creation. No marriage will be unaffected when the people in the marriage are seeking to get from creation what they were only ever meant to get from the Creator. So here's where a couple of your comments about our problem studies come into play. They, the thing that they wanted wasn't necessarily bad, right? They wanted flexibility in their schedule. They wanted a sense of fulfillment and so forth. But they were looking to creation to give them that rather than trusting the Creator and looking to God for their sense of value and worth and worship. So what that means is when we face these struggles in our marriage, the solution is first vertical. I gotta fix my worship before I can fix the problem horizontally. So before I can fix my reason to continue, before I can set my hope on the right thing, before I can fix things in my marriage, I gotta make things right in my worship of God. And typically we like to just jump right past this one because we're so set on what it is we wanted to get in the first place. We d demand that our spouse change in order to give us what we want. We demand that our situation change. We get angry with God because we don't like our circumstances and our circumstances are keeping us from getting the thing that we were worshiping. And we get it backwards. What needs to happen is my worship needs to change. I need to stop, lay all those things aside and say, you alone are God and I submit and I worship you. Now, help me to live for your glory and not mine. And so we often just skip right over the real solution, trying to change everything else around us. All right, let's have a little more discussion here. So uh, on pages 37 to 38, I think it's just three examples this time. Jeannie, Tony, or Abby. So same kind of thing, read, uh, pick one of those, read it with your group, and then I think you have uh, three or four questions here, three questions to answer in your group, and then we'll come back and discuss. All right, go ahead. All right, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, we'll get back here. So wherever you ended in your discussion, let's see if we can share just a few quick answers together. Uh, what did you have for number one? What was the individual seeking from creation that they were only meant to get from the creator? What did you have? You can just shout them out. Value. Okay, value. Seeking value from the creation rather than creator. What else? Identity. Identity, okay. Meaning and purpose. Meaning, purpose, good. Self-worth. Self-worth. Okay, number two, based on that observation, who or what is the individual worshiping? Themselves. Themselves, okay, good. Her husband. Uh-huh. Career. Career, yeah. Okay. 
Good answers. I guess that was three, so that was all our stories, right? So, very good. Um, and then finally, how might things have looked different if the individual had been worshiping God? So in the case of identity, I was thinking when people come, came home, they could see God's reflection. And so, um, so God would be glorified in that not the cell that all needs to be perfect. It needs to be like a museum of beauty. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just looking to glorify God and... and reflect Him. Reflect Him. Good, okay. I think if He's reflected, people see it mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Good, yeah. Other answers? Serve, serve others and Yes, right. Be ready to serve others rather than focused on self. Good. What else? Priority, your set of priorities change. Yes. Yes. Yes, good. Yep. Your priorities are in the right order, right? So, uh, again, that's where it gets really tricky because a lot of times it's the things on our priorities list are good things or fine things. But it's that they get out of order, right? Yeah, that's a big deal. Good. Okay, any other comments before we move on? All right, very good. So, uh, number one tonight, uh, in order to uh, solve this problem, we first have to recognize that the issue is rooted in worship. Number two... Root your marriage in worship of God. So, you know, this sounds really obvious based on what we just discussed, uh, that, you know, there's just such a propensity for idolatry. But the question is really, how do we do this? So take a look with me at Romans uh, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Root your marriage in worship of God. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Root your marriage in worship of God. And so this is uh, on page 38. He doesn't actually go to Romans 5, but we are. Uh, follow along as I read the first few verses here of Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So verses 1 and 2 are just this beautiful summary of the gospel. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And did you notice one of our key words tonight, the word hope, pops up in verse 2. We have access to Him in his, into His grace, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So God's glory becomes our hope. We look to Him. We're excited to see Him glorified. We're excited to see His glory change things around us, reflect what He's like around us. That's where our hope comes from. So what this passage goes on to show is that even in tribulation, we find hope because of the truth of the gospel. Even when we go through tribulation, we're still at peace with God. God can still be glorified. He's using the tribulation to grow me. Notice this is exactly what he describes in verses 3 through 5. Not only that, we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character, hope. 
Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. So the Spirit is the proof that God's love for us will never stop. Therefore, our hope is undefeatable. So no matter what comes up in our marriages, hope continues because we look to a glorious God who has set His love upon us, given us peace with Him through justification by faith unto a hope that never fades away. Right? So there's beautiful truth here. What I'm trying to show you is that coming back to the truth of the gospel, what God did for me in the gospel is a way to root myself back in worship of God. Oh, that's right. I'm a sinner. That's the bad news, right? Me and all of creation is under the curse of sin. So that's bad news. Oh, but wait, there's good news. The Father set His love upon me and sent His Son to pay for my sins, to die and rise again. <gasps> He's the one I should worship because of what He did for me. And so then what's my response? To trust, to turn to Him in faith, to worship Him alone because of what He's done through the gospel. So the gospel is what helps to root us in worship of God. So letter A, find hope in the God who saved you while you were still a sinner. Right here in Romans chapter 5, we come just a few verses later to one of the greatest verses in the New Testament, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even when my sin bubbles up to the surface in my marriage, I can worship God. I can hope in God because I already know He saw my sin, all of it, everything I would do in my whole life. And he still set his love upon me. He still sent his son to die for me. So the gospel reminds me to root myself in worship of God, even when sin bubbles to the surface and gets us messy. We turn to our creator because he hasn't gone anywhere. He still loves us. And, uh, and that's encouraging. Secondly, only when we know God's love can we love God and others. So the gospel helps, us, helps root us in worship because it reminds us of God's love. It turns our eyes to His love, which gives us what we need to love Him back and to love others. And so if you're struggling to love God or to love others, what you need to focus on is the gospel, God's love for you. We love because He first loved us. It starts with Him. He's the instigator. He's the mover. He's the lover. He's the one who chose you and sought you out and loved you while you were yet a sinner. So go back to the gospel and remember, God's love is, the one, is, is what paints the picture for me of how I love him back and how I am to love others. So a couple references there. We won't take the time to go to them tonight. 1 John 3.16 and 1 John 4, 7 through 21. 7 through 21 is a long section. Uh, I encourage you to read that at some point this week because it talks about how the love of God redefines the way we love others. As we see what His love is like, we begin to know what true love is, the way Jesus laid down His life for us. So when we love God first, then we understand how to love others. So the gospel helps us to root our marriage in worship of God. Finally, worship God daily in your marriage. How do we get out of this rut? How do we find our reason to continue? We worship Him daily in our marriage. And so here we want to get a little practical, specific with the way we talk about this. He lists three specific ways to remember our worship of God. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about three aspects of God. These are not the only things to worship about God. They're just three that he points out. Do you have all these blanks? I'm going to go to a fresh slide here. Okay, so uh, here are three ways uh, that we can worship God. Number one, a marriage of love, unity, and understanding will flow out of a daily worship of God as creator. God as creator. First, he encourages us to recognize his divine artistry in our own lives, in my life. He gives a beautiful illustration of this. This is from page, uh, pages 39 to 40. It starts at the bottom goes to the top of the next page. God created every aspect of your personhood and your spouses. He administrated every choice of your hard wiring. He determined how tall you would be, whether you would tend to gain weight, uh, the color of your eyes, the texture of your hair, the shape of your nose, the size of your hands, the tone of your voice, your innate personality, your natural gifts, the tone of your skin, whether you are mechanical, analytical, or relational. You didn't choose any of these things. You didn't wake up at six months and say, I'm going to work on developing a long, thin nose because that will benefit the symmetry of my face. <laughs> the last one's uh, funny because it's absurd, right? It's obvious. We don't control these things. Now, we struggle with that in our own hearts. Sometimes we get frustrated with God because of the way he created us. Oh, I wish my nose wasn't long and skinny, like he says in the example, or whatever. Now, that's a worship problem in and of itself, but it has to do with me. Just as often, or maybe even more often, we do the same thing with our spouse. We insult the divine artist as we just think our spouse should be a little bit more like me. But God didn't make them that way. So, this is number two. Recognize his divine artistry in your spouse. In your spouse. Not just to be thankful for the way he made you, but also to be thankful for the way he made your spouse. This quote is from page 40. There are moments in our selfishness when that other person is in the way of what we want. That we all wish uh, we could rise to the throne of the Creator and recreate our husband or wife into our own image. Or at least into someone who'd be easier to live with. The relational wife wants to turn her mechanical husband into her clone. The analytical husband wants to recreate his more emotionally wired wife into a dispassionate thinker like himself. Right? How often do we look at our spouse, the way God made them, with criticism, insulting our creator, thinking, of, well, someday she'll be more like me. Right? Oh. Now, certainly, there's sin in our life and God is shaping us into the image of Christ but that's not my role to recreate this person into me it's God's role to conform me and her at the same time into the image of Christ and we both have different ways we need to grow and change and our differences are actually little gifts from God to help us grow to help us appreciate his divine creativity to appreciate those things that are different about us so finally, we worship God as creator when we celebrate God's divine artistry. And when we don't, we repent, right? When I'm criticizing myself, the way God made me, the size of my nose or the color of my hair or whatever it is, who am I insulting? Well, we say, you need a better self-esteem. No, I need a better creator esteem, right? We worship him. But then with our spouse, 
Right? When we're impatient, well, if you could just think a little bit more logically like I do, I think you'd see it from my perspective. Well, hold on a second. Pause and appreciate a creator who, who gifted this one to be more in touch with her emotions than I am, or whatever, right? Just making up examples. So celebrate God's divine artistry. So not only do we worship God as creator, we worship God as sovereign. We worship God as sovereign. I like this statement on page 41. Think about this. 15 years ago, you couldn't have written yourself into whatever situation you're in right now. Could you have ever predicted your situation right now? No way. It's impossible, right? We're, just, we're not God. God is God. He's sovereign. He rules over everything. So celebrate your different stories. You and your spouse will have different backgrounds. You'll have different cultural, social, and experiential influences that brought you to where you are today. And a sovereign God wrote that story. So appreciate your differences. This is a, often a big cultural thing. The way we did it in our home growing up, and this is the right way to do it. And right, well, Maybe it's actually just a different way to do things. Right, so to, to learn to appreciate one another because there is a sovereign story writer. Uh, when you encounter these differences in your marriage, worship God as sovereign and celebrate the different way of looking at the world. Or, that's one choice, we can worship God as sovereign and celebrate the different way of looking at the world. Or, two, dishonor God by trying to rewrite his story. Finally, did you get all those blanks? I'll go back. Worship and dishonor. Finally, we worship God as Savior. We worship God as Savior. When you celebrate God as Savior, you're confronted with the reality of how much you are in desperate need of His grace. Again, this is the gospel. It reminds me, I'm a sinner. I'm not creator. I'm not sovereign. I'm not in charge here. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, here, let me get this up there. There you go. Uh, I'm not the Savior, God's the Savior. And so that means I'm ready to admit that I need grace, and I'm ready to give grace. Because that's what God has given us. When we start with the vertical, we remember how God treated us in the picture. Right? When I was a sinner, He loved me. When I continue to sin, He shows me grace. When I need to grow, He sanctifies me. When I'm difficult, He's patient, right? So when we get our vertical worship correct, we see what God is like. We see how He treats us. And it clarifies, oh, right. I'm supposed to show this person that same patience and grace and mercy and love even when she sins. So worship of God just clarifies how we relate to one another horizontally. Worshiping God as Savior also means you find joy in being a part of the work of grace that God is unrelentingly committed to doing in your spouse's life. So we could summarize it this way. Develop gospel-fueled worship. If you're looking for a reason to continue, go back to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. 
for we judge the, or the love of Christ compels us, for we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We were dead. End of story. Not much to talk about there. We were dead. But then he died for us, gave us life, so that those who live, that's me, should live no longer for me, but for him who died for me and rose again. That's what changes our worship. We look to the gospel. I had nothing. I was dead. And he gave his life for me. So yeah, I'll live for him. I'll live for him. Gospel-fueled worship. Now I want to close by just giving you a brief example. You have in your notes there a little review section. Um, we're not going to have time for our third section of... Uh, discussion. Yeah. So this would be a fun one to do with your spouse uh, on your own time. But uh, I just want to give you an example of what this looks like in life. So as we go through this course, I'm going to try to be uh, transparent with you for, in our own life and marriage. So I know we're a minute over. I'll, I'll be really fast. And if you need to go, feel free to leave. I will not be uh, offended. Uh, so last night, uh, I was, there was a Bible study here at the church for the, for the women's. I was at home, and uh, it's been a busy season of life here at the church, so um, I had some work I needed to do at home, and I had a, a list of four or five things that I wanted to get done last night. Uh, is that such a bad goal, right? I mean, come on. I'm, I'm trying to get you on my side here. Um, right, so I had some things I wanted to get done, so I planted myself at the kitchen table, opened my laptop, and, uh, and started into my first task. And the first task proved to be slower and more difficult than I predicted. And so I kept working. I mean, I just, you know, nose to the grindstone, I'm plugging away on my first task. First hour passes by. Okay, okay, there's still hope. I can still get these five tasks done in the next three hours, right? Until she gets home. Next hour passes, still on my first task. Next hour passes, still on my first task. Oh, so now, I'm beginning to get frustrated with God because he's not giving me what I wanted, right? This task is just taking forever and I don't understand why. Why won't it just click? Why won't it come together? Why can't I get this done? I, Lord, I, I want to do a good thing. I want to get some stuff done tonight. You know, I had a free night to get ahead on some things and I can't do it. You know, so the frustration is just building up in me. And what am I doing? I mean, just notice the little drift. Now, I'm not thinking this last night, okay? This is reflection back on it. So please understand this. But what's happening in me, right? I'm assessing what a sovereign God has allowed in my life, and I'm comparing it to my plan for the evening. And I'm saying, I like my plan better. I don't trust you, sovereign God. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. Five tasks tonight was the better plan, right? So I get frustrated with a God who has exerted his rule in my life and one thing was all I was able to get done in four hours, right? So Carrie gets home, 10 o'clock or so, and I'm still sitting there at the kitchen table, haven't gone, I got, I got up one time to get a drink. And uh, she comes in the door, and I turn and look at her, you know, like this exasperated, like, you know. And she's ready to tell me all about all the exciting things that happened at the Bible study. 
and I want to just vent to her about the frustrating evening I've had. I've been trying to get things done for church, and I, couldn't, I just couldn't finish this one task. Four hours, I worked four hours. You know, I want to tell her all these things. And so she's sweetly trying to tell me about how wonderful the evening was and the, the things they learned again. They learned, to, they learned to trust God, right? How ironic is that? And so here I am, not trusting a sovereign creator uh, about how my evening went. And I'm not listening to her well. And I'm, you know, short and frustrated in my responses. Okay, so all this is happening. Now, Carrie didn't even need to point it out to me. She was so sweet about it. She just gently waited until I was ready to listen, you know, a little better. Eventually, I figured it out. So God worked in my heart. Uh, thankfully, this is not always the case. About 10 minutes later, uh, I came back to Carrie and I apologized to her. And I had to admit to her that what had gone on in my heart, it wasn't just that I wasn't listening well. It wasn't just that I was trying to have my way and invent my troubles, and I wasn't, you know, hearing her. No, the real problem was my worship, right? And this is, again, what takes some reflection sometimes. But I had made myself God of my little world. And for what I thought was really good reasons. I, I wanted to get some stuff done for the church, you know? Serving God here. Make it go fast, God. <laughs> but God had other plans. I can tell you exactly what one of God's designs was for last night. It was to sanctify me. To show me that I was way too attached to productivity, to accomplishing things, and wasn't willing to submit to His sovereign rule in my life. And that's an eternal and far more valuable lesson than, I, than getting those five tasks done. By God's grace, I got them done this morning, so you can rejoice with me in that, right? <laughs> but these are the little things. They come up all the time. And constantly, they're bubbling to the surface. And I just encourage you, look at your worship first. What are you doing vertically with God? And that will help you as you seek to solve these things horizontally, okay? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Even though we sin, you are so kind and gracious to us. Help us uh, to repent, worship you as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.